Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. My very special guest on this episode of the Grant Williams podcast is my good friend, the inimitable Felix Zulauf. Last year, Felix joined Bill and I for an episode of The Endgame, about which I'm still receiving emails. And so I am absolutely delighted that Felix is joining me today to offer an update on his latest thinking. The catalyst for this conversation was a webinar Felix recently conducted for his clients in which he offered another masterclass of macro analysis. And as you'll see, a very bi-directional view of markets between now and what Felix expects to be an historical top in 2024. For those of you unfamiliar with Felix's work, please either visit his website at felixzulauf.com or email the wonderful and incredible Jen Mendel at jennifer at bluefoxadvisors about what is not only an invaluable service, but one which looks set to become even more essential if Felix is right about what comes next. So with that as prologue, Please enjoy my conversation with the great Felix Zulauf. Well, Felix, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks again for joining me. So it's really good to really good to be with you again. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, listen, the invitation is an open one. You are welcome any any time you feel like you have something to say. I want to hear it. So um, I, I had the great pleasure of listening to a webinar that you gave uh, yesterday for for your clients. And uh, you know, as always, it was a tour de force of macro thinking. And so I think what I'd love to do to kick off, um, the last time you were on the podcast uh, with Bill and I in the end game, you kind of kicked things off with your macro view of the world and, and what you saw coming. And it, it was... It was such a wonderful condensation of so many different facets of, of the economy, of markets, uh, politics, all of it. So I'd love to, if we can, kind of do the same thing. And let me just give you the floor to, to give us an overview of where you think we are and what you see for the, for the coming quarters. Well, the last two years saw many extraordinary developments. Uh, <laughs> yes. We have seen uh, the pandemic. We have seen the lockdown-induced um, sharp decline of the economy. The deepest in the U.S. Uh, we have seen the biggest stimulation, fiscal and monetary, uh, ever uh, in many countries, particularly in the U.S. And we have seen uh, the reaction after the market crash uh, markets rallying virtually in a straight line up to this day and to new record highs. And, and this uh, has been far away from normal, extraordinary things. And people uh, usually forget that the markets are action and reaction. And if you have an excess uh, in one direction, uh, you, um, you see a, a response uh, with an excess in the other direction. What I see ahead for 2022 is uh, particularly in the first half, just about the opposite of what we have seen in 21 and 20. Mm. And uh, I think the economy will disappoint, the world economy will disappoint. The first point is that uh, China is in recession and will remain in recession. And this is not just a cyclical downswing. I think this is a structural change because uh, China has hit the limits for some years, 
where it has to restructure its whole economic model and system uh, to, to a large degree. It is facing uh, changing demographics. Um, the workforce, the labor force uh, number goes down for the next uh, few decades. Uh, the uh, debt situation is uh, worse than it was in Japan in 1990. The situation with the banking industry is that the banking industry is virtually unable to finance further growth uh, or high growth, as we have seen. Uh, the banking system is very weak uh, capitalized, uh, 2% equity capital. The uh, earnings uh, situation of the banks is about equal to the official non-performing loan situation. And if you take the unofficial non-performing loan situation, they are really making losses. So it's a very bad situation for China. And I think China will be a big drag on the world economy because uh, particularly Europe, that is a big exporter to China, will uh, get hit hard as these exports will slow down. Then you have in the Western world, you have the fiscal situation. We had uh, huge deficits uh, last year and the year before. And in 22, the deficits will be smaller, probably cut by about half. This means that you have a negative fiscal impulse that is very powerful. And that will be felt in uh, the growth rate of uh, GDP. That's uh, another important point. And personal income situation is such that uh, the real disposable personal income is now negative in the Eurozone as well as in the US. And that should dampen uh, consumer spending. The consumer has been outrageous, particularly in the US, spent uh, above trend line in 2021 due to the tremendous fiscal stimulus. Now that fiscal stimulus goes down and I think the exaggeration on the upside in the spending on durables and non-durables will be corrected over 2022. All of these factors will uh, contribute to a disappointing uh, economic landscape um, on the downside. I do not believe that the Western world will go into recession, but the disappointments will be tremendous because consensus expectations are around 5% growth or near 5% growth. I think we will be closer to uh, 2% or even lower than that. This is the picture. And now you add in monetary policy. Uh, we had a huge QE program in the US, uh, over 1 trillion that was uh, injected into the uh, credit system. That is over. They are going to taper. Uh, so the rate of change is negative. Then you have the Treasury that injected um, about 1.5 trillion mm -hmm. US dollars into the system by reducing its account at the Fed. They are now down to uh, an account of 140 billion or something in that area. And their goal is to get back to 550 billion. That means they are going to soak out of the system about 400 billion US dollars. So I think that liquidity situation is going to change dramatically from what we have seen in 21. And now you add in what's happening in China. Uh, when we look at China, I think China is soaking up a lot of uh, international liquidity. You know, the Chinese have not been able to finance their economy 
by themselves in the last five, six years. They had to rely on foreign funding. And interestingly, when you look at the statistics of the US banking system, that is the origin of US dollar funding to uh, non-residents, then you see that it is shrinking. And interestingly, you see that China uh, is running large uh, trade surpluses, but the foreign exchange reserves do not change. So obviously, it seems that the, the Chinese are repaying a, a lot of the US dollar loans that, are, that have been outstanding. And that makes all sense to get uh, less dependent on the, the foreigners in a conflict situation with the US. Now, what all this does is, when you create a new loan, you create liquidity because 8% of the loan is equity capital, 92% is newly created money. And when you repay a loan, it's just the reverse. So the shrinking of those US dollar denominated credit globally is a, a sort of a liquidity decline that is not being felt yet, but will be over time. And particularly the last uh, man standing is the US when they turn negative and then start to taper. I think that it will be felt in the markets. And therefore my hunch is that um, bond yields will be soft in the first half uh, due to the negative surprises and inflation will come down because commodity prices will correct. And so you have a rally in the bond market. I think in the stock market, you have the action and reaction situation. The excesses on the upside have been tremendous. Uh, you had so many novice uh, investors joining the market yeah. and uh, inflow into U.S. equity and equity products, mutual funds and the like over the last 12 months have been over $1 trillion, which is more than the last 19 years combined. And this <laughs> yeah. is a, an excess of a century. And I think uh, this excess is going to be partly corrected. And therefore, I do not believe that the correction will be a, a plain vanilla 5 to 8% correction, but it will be more. Uh, I think that we are in the final phase of this bull market of 2009, but we probably have another two years to run. And I do not believe that the peak that we are making here on a medium-term basis is the final peak of that bull market. I think it's an interim peak with a sharp correction. My hunch is that the rise from the 2020 low is a rising diagonal or wedge. And uh, what's ahead is uh, wave two down. And uh, in theory, those waves retrace 76%. In practice, it could be less, of course. 76% would give you an S&P of 2,600. That's not my forecast, but I think we could, we could see 3,000 on the S&P, a very sharp correction down, a big shakeout, and that would uh, scare the hell out of uh, the authorities, monetary and fiscal, and I think they would then reload the guns and come in again. This could give us a big run-up uh, from somewhere around middle of uh, uh, this new year, 22 into 24, where I think uh, that's the long-term peak. And it could easily be a doubling of the indices from that low that I expect in mid-22. That's roughly my outlook uh, for, for next year. 
All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm cracking my knuckles, flexing to get in on this because there's, I mean, there's so many fantastic points you made. And, and that, say the charts you shared in that webinar were, um, were, were just an extraordinary set of illustrations of this. So let's start with China, I think, because as I watched yesterday and as I listened to you there talking, you have a very different view on China than a lot of people. People are still, you know, people remain sanguine about China. They, they kind of have this belief that China will find some way to figure it all out. And even though we've got problems there, they'll kind of muddle through. And, and I think the, the, the points you made yesterday are well worth repeating. You know, you talked about the banking system and, and just how fragile it is, which uh, in turn means that they really can't lower rates in, in, in China. They're kind of trapped in that situation where if they lower rates anymore, the banking system is is completely unprofitable, and added to which, obviously, um, the size of the real estate market in China. So, so let's kind of dig into China as you see it, what you expect going forward, and with particular thoughts about the real estate market because it's it's a big issue in China, particularly with Evergrande and all the other uh, property developers coming under such pressure recently. Yeah, I, well, first of all, I think the Chinese government is realizing um, the situation they are in. Uh, they are uh, realistic about it. They understand it. And that's why I have been preaching for quite some time that the Chinese will not go back to a major stimulus program where the whole world uh, expected a major stimulus program, but yeah. it would have made their problems even worse. And that's why... I do. I didn't expect it, and I still do not expect that. Uh, all they will do is they will try to support the system and the company, uh, the restructuring process that is necessary. Well, real estate, uh, you know, the, the big boom in in China over the last twenty years was really in real estate and infrastructure. As a fixed asset investment part of the economy is over 40% of the economy. That's a very large number compared to the Western world where it is uh, below 20%. And this created the tremendous GDP growth. But we also have to say that 25% of real estate is empty. Uh, and, uh, and, and the owners... Uh, didn't care about it because prices continue to go up over the last 20 years. Prices have uh, trebled uh, in Chinese real estate. So if you do not get uh, your 5% or 4% return on rents, but you get your continuous uh, 10% uh, return in price, who cares? Uh, this is a different situation now. Now we have uh, an overhang of unsold inventory. And we have the Chinese that have over 90% of their savings invested in real estate. This is different from any other country in the world. And it has to do with the fact that uh, there are capital controls and ca they cannot invest outside of China, uh, except if the government sa uh, sanctions it. And, uh, but other, without the government's permission, you can you cannot do it. So they are stuck inside China. They have invested in real estate. Over 90% of their assets are in real estate and real estate prices are coming down. This suggests that consumer sentiment will not very buoyed uh, in, in the next few years. So uh, it will be dampened and therefore consumer spending will not be very powerful too. You, you know, this is all connected. Yeah. And uh and the home ownership uh, is also very important. It's uh, it's ninety five percent. I think it's the country with the highest uh, home ownership, ninety five percent. Uh, 
So if your own home goes down in price, uh, it doesn't really make you happy. And you may be reluctant to spend extra dollars or extra remnants uh, in, in such a situation. You rather save a little bit more because your assets, your balance sheet shrinks, actually. You know, that's what it is. And when your balance sheet shrinks, it doesn't make you feel comfortable. So I think um, China is a not well understood situation among uh, economists and investors. And, and I think they are in, uh, in a terrible situation. Credit growth is uh, below what uh, the borrowing requirement is by the corporate sector. Uh, that means uh, China is right now in a credit crunch. Uh, it's a deflationary situation. And the deflationary situation makes for a, a strong currency. Interestingly enough, this morning, they uh, hiked uh, the um, reserve uh, ratio for U.S. dollar deposits, which is a sign that they want the dollar to go up and the renminbi to go down. So they do not want, they want to lean against the wind and do not want uh, a stronger renminbi. The, the renminbi is too strong for them. So this is all very interesting. And because China has been the driving force uh, of the world economy for so many years, that locomotive is gone for years to come. So the Western world is uh, on its own. And also the emerging market um, uh, universe is on its own because you cannot export as much as you could in the past, or export growth will slow down tremendously. It all backfires, it's all interlinked because China is integrated in the world economy. So I think this is uh, not well understood yet. No, I, I agree, which is why I wanted to start with that because um, you know the, the case you laid out is just, is just so interesting because it's not the way most people are thinking about this. And when you talk about the authorities realizing the, the problem they're in, you know, as you've explained there, it does seem a particularly sticky wicket, as we say in the UK, um, for them to be on. They don't have the ability to lower rates because of the, the problems of the banking system. They've got this housing market, which they're going to have a real problem if that starts to aggressively deflate. But you had a chart in your pack that showed where the US and where Chinese investors were invested. And obviously, the big column in the Chinese one was real estate. The big one in the US was uh, financial assets, equities, essentially. Uh, and you showed, I think, that the that the real estate investment in the US now was less than half of what it is in China. Is there any way they can perhaps engineer some kind of stock market bubble to try and get people into equities to kind of offset the uh, a fall in the housing market? Or is that not as simple as it sounds? Well, you rightly said that they cannot cut interest rates dramatically. They can cut a little bit but yeah. they cannot cut dramatically because otherwise the banking system loses its 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 little income that that it has i think there is another factor they do not want a weak currency they want a stable currency and the stable currency is important for them because that will make sure that foreigners can invest into financial assets in china in equities as well as in bonds and that inflow of money helps them to improve their balance sheets. And therefore, they want a stable currency and they want to keep their bond market as attractive as it can be. It's the only bond market in the world with a stable currency yeah. uh, that offers you a decent real yield, nominal and real yield. 
so these, uh, over time, they think can help them. And there is a tremendous flow of money into Chinese bonds, little into Chinese equities, but, but they are hoping more will come. I think the Chinese equity market has little downside risk, maybe 10% or so from here. Uh, and, and it will correct much less than the Western markets in the correction that I foresee. And it could be attractive thereafter. But that's what they are trying to engineer to make it attractive for foreigners, that the inflow of money increases and helps them to restructure their corporate sector. That's the goal. You showed another fantastic chart, which shows, showed the level of Chinese corporate debt to GDP, though. And that chart just took my breath away. And the, the, the scale of, of that compared to the US, compared to the other um, lines on that chart was, was extraordinary. Well, yeah, the corporate debt in the US uh, to GDP, corporate debt to GDP is uh, is about 80, 85% or so. Uh, in Germany, it's um, 65%. In uh, Japan, it's um, 120. Uh, in China, it's 170. Yeah. And it used and it used to be 60 30 years ago. Uh, so they have really loaded up and they have leveraged the whole system. And what is starting or what has started a good year ago is really the deleveraging of the system. And that's not a one-year or two-year process. That's a multi-year process. You know, there are many similarities to Japan in 1990, the demographics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the corporate debt situation was very similar at that time. The banking situation was very similar at that time. Of course, there are differences also. But I think um, China is at a very similar point uh, to Japan in 1990. They have to go through a major and long-term restructuring. But that's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that comparison up. And, and again, you did. You showed the demographics that China faces are just almost identical to the same curve that Japan went through. And we saw, and we saw this, these two lost decades of, uh, that Japan went through. But of course, when Japan was doing that, when Japan was deleveraging and going through that period, and, and at the time it was the second largest economy in the world, China took up the baton. And so the, the global economy uh, and global asset prices and asset markets had kind of someone else to come in and pick up the slack. So the, the the ability for Japan to quietly go through that deleveraging process over two decades was there because everyone was focused on emerging markets, focused on China's rise. Does China have that luxury, or rather, does the rest of the world have that luxury for China to make this deleveraging process a long, slow, drawn-out affair? Or is there a chance that that investors will make it one of those nasty, quick affairs for them? Uh, no, it won't be a quick affair. I think it will be a long process, a grinding process. And I think what the Chinese are doing right, unlike the Western world where they do not let the large companies go bust, mm-hmm. the Chinese play according to the capitalist rules. Bankruptcy <laughs> and restructuring is part of the capitalist process. And they are doing it right. And they are forcing companies into restructuring. And that's the right thing to do. I think the Western world is doing it wrong by always bailing out the system and and making the situation worse. So in that sense, I think the Chinese are going a healthier path, but it's a painful process. Whereas the Western world is trying to procrastinate and eventually we'll have a big disaster. 
you see. There is another chart I showed that is uh, of interest. It's uh, the increase in uh, four-quarter GDP, which is yeah. about uh, eight trillion, and the increase in annual interest payment is about uh, 14 trillion. So um, it's not quite double the amount of interest payments relative to GDP growth. That's a huge credit crunch going on. That's mm -hmm. so highly deflationary, and the world doesn't understand that. I, I think, I mean, the point you make about the Chinese following the capitalist rules and the West not is kind of funny, but not really for, for those of us that kind of pin our flags to the capitalist mask. But the West has created that system around it by, as you say, blinking whenever they see the the, the kind of the, the, the correction approaching. Do the Chinese have the ability to continue down this path they're going on? Or is there some potential event out there? Maybe it is a major problem in the real estate market that would force them to blink and do exactly what the West has done and, and, and run scared from a deleveraging or restructuring of the system. Well, the, the Chinese government has a relatively low debt level. And uh, what they can do is they can nationalize uh, part of uh, the real estate. They could do that and put it into some agencies or whatever, call it mm -hmm. social programs or whatever. There right. are many there are many tricks they can do. So I, I, I'm not concerned that they cannot manage the situation. I, I think they will be able to manage through that. But the result of that will be for many, many years, relatively low growth in China. And that means there is the fallout for the Western world is that we won't be able to export as much as we could in the past. And I think they can do that because it's a totalitarian system and it's closed in some ways because the capital cannot move away. You know, if it would be an open system, the currency would tank sooner or later. The currency yeah. would tank. And, and they are managing it in a different way. And therefore, it's a little bit different than what an open economy would go through. Well, you know, when you, when you talk about a prolonged period of weaker growth in China, that kind of brings me on to commodities because that was the engine for the commodity bull market that we saw around the, the kind of middle of the last decade. Um, and I think it's been the hope that we see now uh, a renewed commodities bull market. We've seen the beginnings of that. How do you think this nascent bull market in commodities plays out from here? And what effect do you think the problems you've had in China and the way they're going to manage that and the, and the lower growth they're going to have on that commodities bull market? Well, I think the Chinese restructuring process is probably a 10-year affair, uh, mm -hmm. not the two- or three-year affair, a 10-year affair. The commodities bull market, um, when it started in 2020, started due to the fiscal stimulus and the monetary stimulus. And it was at the end of a 12-year bear market. And uh, it, it was interesting how the pieces were falling into place. It was coming uh, to the point where technically you saw you had Elliott waves down, you had long-term momentum, so it's done. everything pointed to an important low in the commodity market. And what we have seen is the first uh, move up, the straight up line. And when you historically divide the different commodity bull markets over the last 200 years, you see periods where you have usually a 10-year bear market and then a 10 to 15-year bull market. And the first part of the bull market is usually two big legs up and then a very big correction. 
and then several years up. So of these two legs up, what we have seen so far is leg one. And I think now we go into a correction, uh, let's say into mid, uh, in the first half of next year, oil could go to $50 or even somewhere below. And then when the authorities come in with renewed stimulus, which I do expect uh, based on my scenario, uh, then I think we go into the second uplink, which could be another double of the Bloomberg index, for instance, and uh, and oil could uh, run to two hundred dollars in twenty four or so. Uh, that's what I expect, and this rise will be not because demand will be so powerful and increase dramatically, but because the supply is not there. You know, we have had a 12-year bear market in commodities, and therefore we have had a tremendous underinvestment. And there is a structural shortage of supply. And when you bash the fossil fuel industry for years, and you tell them the world is going away from fossil fuels, it's no surprise that the oil and gas industry doesn't invest anymore. And the investments for years have gone down and down and down. And all of a sudden we realize that despite all the renewable energy that is coming on stream, the demand for oil continues to grow. It continues to grow and it keeps growing. And therefore, we are running into a supply problem. So I think that next leg will be again a supply problem because we do not have enough supply. And on the food commodities, you know, unlike... uh, Mm -hmm. Um, the the alarmist about the climate warming, I think it's just the opposite. I think uh, the cycle of climate warming has peaked. I read the Wall Street Journal and some other newspapers of the 1920s and 30s back 50 years ago when I was in New York. And I wanted to understand the change from rising inflation to declining inflation which happened from the 20s into the 30s and the social impact and all that. And what I found out in newspapers in the first half of the 30s, there were alarmist articles about global warming and uh, the ice would melt. And there were articles writing that uh, Manhattan would be 12 meters underwater and uh, you would only see the peak of uh, uh, Chrysler building and things like that. So they were the same extreme situation as we have today. And there is a social extreme that we are seeing regarding climate. And I think it's it's just the other way around. The cycles that I follow, which has to do with the flows of the sea, which has to do with the sun activity and with volcanic activity, all points to cooling of the climate over the next 30 years or so. Cooling is actually much worse than warming because cooling leads to lower harvests Mm -hmm. and it leads to famines and it leads to higher prices of uh, agricultural goods, which is uh, eating into the lower income class very dramatically. So I, I think it's going to be a move based on not enough supply. It's not so much that demand will be, there will be a big push in demand like we have seen uh, by the Chinese uh, infrastructure um, situation many years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's different. It comes from the supply side. 
Well, you know, this is really interesting because, um, you know, if you're right about this and, you know, instantly there are, there are 50% of the people listening to this going, yes, he's right. And 50% saying he doesn't know what he's talking about, um, <laughs> which is unfortunate that that's the kind of attitude people say, but, let, but let's, let's think about a world in which you're right. We have a movement towards ESG, towards sustainable energy, towards green energy, towards um, the kind of abandonment of, let's call them hydrocarbons as opposed to fossil fuels. And, you know, if you are right, there's no way people are going to make that leap and say, you know what, this is an age of cooling. Let's quickly reverse everything. You know, it's just going to exacerbate the situation because to try and reverse the move towards green energy, towards um, ESG, is not going to happen until it's way too late, if it needs to happen at all. You know, it's an interesting topic because when you look at uh, all the government programs, like um, uh, the NASA's uh, program Apollo, when you look at the building of the Chinese wall, when you look at the Suez uh, and Panama Canal and things like that, all these projects together are half of what is now planned in ESG by governments. This <laughs> is this is an excess not of a century but as of, of a millennium. This is just as extreme. You cannot you cannot believe it. And I think the world is crazy. Uh, it's become a dogma. Uh, yeah. And they will try until people realize that it won't change the situation or the situation is not as severe, as they say, and it eats too much out of their pocket for these things. Uh, and then together with some other points uh, I have in mind, you will have a revolution against the uh, political elite and the political establishment. Uh, I think the people will stand up against them. And, and I expect that uh, uh, to happen over the next 10 years, whether it will be all quiet and by um, the normal voting system that we will kick out the current establishment in politics and renew that with um, uh, people that are more down to earth and more practical in their ideas, uh, or whether it is done by real revolutions in the streets. Yeah. I do not know. I do not know. But I, I think there is a tremendous unstable political situation ahead of us over the next 10 years. Yeah, it, it feels that way. You know, it feels as though not only is the financial system kind of creaking and coming to the end of its useful life, but it, but it also does feel like this political system, certainly in the West, is clinging on. And a lot of, I think a lot of decisions that are being made are being made out of desperation and out of you know, a furtherance of that system rather than you know, on the basis of pragmatism or, or, or common sense. It certainly seems that way in the UK and the US where I've spent a fair bit of time recently. Yeah, and, and also in Europe on the continent. Yeah, yeah. same thing. The scenario we've just discussed with regards to um, commodities initially and then maybe hydrocarbons uh, latterly feeds us into the, the the topic of inflation because a lot of a lot of the inflation prints that we're seeing are driven by the increase in oil prices particularly but again your outlook on inflation again is different to a lot of people and you know that, this is why I love hearing what you have to say because your your views are so much more nuanced you can see things in both directions so so give us a sense of how you think inflation moves from here um, in the US and in Europe well, the big push-up in, in, in CPI inflation was particularly in the countries where we had a large fiscal uh, stimulus supporting demand. And the bigger the fiscal stimulus was, the higher inflation went, because 
it created high demand and there was a supply problem. The supply chains didn't work, the shipping didn't work, uh, production didn't work the way it should. And to bring that into balance, they had to raise prices. And, and that was the effect. Uh, I think if I'm right on the economy next year, then I think the supply problem will ease to some degree. The demand shock will also relax and ease. And therefore, I think uh, uh, inflation will come back. And then you have the base effect because you compare prices in 22 to 21 when they have been high. And, and all of this should bring inflation down temporarily. If I'm right about what follows after this and uh, the authorities stimulating again big time, then I think uh, 23, 24 is the next leg up in commodities will bring out much higher inflation than this time. So I think uh, in 24, I wouldn't be surprised to see 10% CPI in the US. With $200 oil, you could easily see 10% inflation. And of course, uh, it's always the second wave in inflation that really scares people. The first time, and particularly when it debates again and softens, people do not care that much. But the second time they say, this is a recurring thing, this is awful, and this is a new trend. And we saw that in the 1970s, uh, when the bond market were not hit very badly in the first wave of inflation, but in the second wave, they were hit very badly. And this is what I do expect. If you have 10% CPI inflation, <laughs> the Fed has to tighten and bond yields will go up and they will not go up 100 basis points. They will go up a lot more. And when that happens, then you trigger a crisis. Then you trigger a crisis in real estate and you trigger a crisis in the stock market and in the real economy. Real estate is uh, the sector that is highly sensitive to changes in, in interest rates because 70 to 80% of real estate is state financed. And if uh, rates go up and bond yields go up and the refinancing goes up with it, uh, it affects uh, the real estate market. The real estate market on a global basis is now trading as far above the rental value as it did in 2007 in the US uh, uh, or, or in other places at the peak. So it's overpriced, but it can stay overpriced as long as rates and bond yields stay low. Once they begin to rise, it triggers a change. It, it pricks the bubble. And then you have a uh, downside correction in real estate. And when you have a real estate uh, crisis and declining prices in real estate, that's when you have big problems in the economy. And of course, it would also prick the bubble in, in the stock market. And then you have a big decline. So it's conceivable that the 24 peak could be very similar in a long-term sense and context to the 1929 peak. Although the situation is not the same, the role of the government is much bigger today than it used, used to be then, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I think it could be a very important peak. And so the next few years to me look like a roller coaster. And if you do not time these cyclical swings, and most people cannot do that, and most professionals cannot even do that profitably, unfortunately, then you end up in a buy and hold strategy or passive investment strategy 
with very mediocre returns. Actually, the number suggests for world equities and for US equities in real terms over the next 10 years, 0% return. And you, if you play the roller coasters and you can take out the, let's say, 80% or 75% of the moves up and down, you create a good return. But it, you need the timing of the macro situation. Yeah, you, you, you've taken me exactly where I wanted to go, but, I, but I'm going to put a pin in that just for a second and just go back to one more point I want to ask you about, that CPI inflation uh, scenario that you laid out for 2024. And that's, um, you know, if we have 10% CPI inflation in the US, one can make an assumption that it's going to be uh, similar in, in, in scale in, in Europe particularly. Now, I think we all probably have a good handle on where rates ought to be in that situation. But realistically speaking, given the overhanging debt, given the amount of debt that's been piled onto government balance sheets over the last you know, 25 years, where can we expect interest rates to get to? Because there's a breaking point, both in terms of bond markets uh, and asset prices, but also in terms of government finances, where if rates go anywhere near where they need to be to combat 10% CPI inflation, none of this works anymore. Well, obviously, if um, the central banks of the old days would have come in in 23 or early 24 or so and stopped the whole process and pushed mm. the world economy into a recession and would solve the problem that way. That's the old conventional way. Now, in the new world, uh, with MMT crowd in charge uh, uh, at some of the central banks, it may be that they hesitate and stay behind the curve and don't do it. And then the bond market has to be the vigilante, uh, in a sense, to do the trick. If the bond market does something that central banks do not want to occur because they see the problem, and then they start buying bonds like crazy to keep downside pressure on yields, then we are in a new game. Mm -hmm. Then we are in the game that we talked about in the last podcast about the end game. Yeah. Uh, and that's a different world. So I'm very open to what could happen, but I'm prepared for both scenarios. And I suggest uh, every sensible investor should be. We do not know what will happen then, but it will get very interesting, of course. Yeah, right. Well, okay, let's go, let's go back to where you took us a minute ago, and that's this idea of, of timing. Because as I say, that's that's why I love talking to you, because you look at these swings in both directions and, and you can see how we can get from A to B, but there'll be all kinds of peaks and troughs in between. And the case you lay out um, yesterday and here on this podcast have been uh, extremely compelling. But as you just said a minute ago, there's been this enormous shift towards passive investing. And so many investors now have their wealth tied up in these passive products, which have been remarkably profitable as the markets have trended in, in one direction, which is essentially what we've had for a decade now. But when we get into this, this world where guys who can see markets in both directions like you tend to do really, really well, it's going to be a terrible time to be in passive because you're going to get kicked out at the bottoms. You're going to be buying in again at the tops. How do you think about what a shift away from passive means? Because it'll obviously happen too late. And how should people who've been in passive for the last 10 years try and adjust their thinking to embrace the idea of market timing again? 
Well, there are not many market timers around because market <laughs> timing uh, is completely out of favor. There are yeah. a few old guys like me, uh, but uh, but the the average strategies today most cannot do so. Uh, there are a few guys who are willing to stick uh, their head out, but most cannot do so. Well, what it will do is investors react after the fact. So if the market declines a lot and they see, well, I should have sold, they may then become more flexible, perhaps at the wrong time. Perhaps they sell out near the bottom of the lows in 22, just to see prices doubling again into 24. And that could happen. And usually in a bull market, you know, there is a there is a nice uh, and interesting booklet out uh, written in, I think, in 1919 or something or 1922, when they researched the brokerage accounts and they researched how the clients behaved. And at the beginning of a stock market boom, they buy and sell, they buy and sell, they trade. And as we progress further, they all of a sudden, near the peak, they look back and say, I should have been buying and sitting. So I now buy and sit. And that's near the peak. And then it goes down. So we are all, you know, human nature, we get conditioned by our experience and by our past. I think the buy and hold strategies um, five years from now, uh, six years from now, will be completely out of favor. Uh, I think uh, hedge funds, um, uh, new macro hedge funds and stock uh, long short hedge funds will come back into favor and not those kind of hedge funds that are long only and add a little bit of shorts just to get higher fees. Uh, I, I think the real, the true ones that know what they are doing on the short and on the long side, like in the old days, I, I think that will come back into favor. And I think all the big investment houses with their long-only products, they will suffer badly. Uh, they have to change their business model. Uh, and if they don't, they fade. Yeah. And, and as we know from experience, that always happens too late. It always happens after the point where they should have done that. You know, just um, put into context, if you can, because you, you say so you did so in, in the charts you had. When we look at the U.S. equity market outperformance, it's been remarkable against the MSCI World Index. So just, just give us a little perspective on not just how much the U.S. has outperformed, but also the numbers beneath that, because you know, everything's not what it seems. And we're kind of in the middle of now what looks to be some kind of rolling top here. We've seen breadth deteriorate dramatically, which is something we always see at, at these periods. We've seen distribution. Just give us an assessment of the U.S. equity market in context. Well, the U.S. equity market, uh, as, as many know, has been driven by uh, just a handful of stocks. Uh, the U.S. equity market has outperformed the rest of the world dramatically. Since the last peak of 2008, on an index basis, it has gone from 100 to over 300, uh, whereas the world index went from 100 to about 115. This is a huge difference. Never seen anything like it. And not even Japan was as, as excessive. And the FANG stocks from early 2008 onwards have gone up 14-fold, 14-fold. That's Facebook, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Microsoft. 
whereas the other 494 S&P stocks went up from 100 to 215. So that's the difference. And the world index went up by 15%. So that's the difference. It's a highly concentrated situation that we have seen, not just in the US, but worldwide. Of course, there were in European markets, there are also a handful of growth stocks that have also outperformed the market tremendously. And they are all good companies. The uh, LVM Marsh of this world, um, the SICA uh, in Switzerland, uh, uh, Givaudan, and, and things like that. And I think the correction I see will probably narrow the gap a little bit, but I do believe that these winning stocks will continue to lead in the next advance from mid-22 low into uh, the 24 high. They will again be the leaders because usually... Uh, a leadership group does not give up its leadership until the bull market has been terminated. So they will come back uh, roaring again after the correction. The correction will probably be a little bit nastier in these stocks than in others, but uh, not by much. Uh, I, you know, I think the European indices will probably decline 5% less than the US indices and something like that. But afterwards, uh, the U.S. Uh, will uh, surpass uh, Europe and Asia again on the upside. These are all fantastic companies, no question about it. They are profitable. They have fantastic uh, business models, and they will continue to prosper. But there is a price, and I think it's the price that is outrageous, and particularly for those companies that are not as profitable, but have a business model that promises to become as successful as for these companies and are based on uh, smoke and mirrors, uh, those will be uh, decimated, of course. Well, yeah, it's, it's so interesting you bring that up, Felix, because we do seem to have so many of those stocks now, the, the ones you just described. What do you make of that? Is that another reflection of where we are in the cycle, as as uh, the psychological cycle of investors, we, when we've been here before, but it does seem particularly extreme this time around. And is that just a function of zero cost of capital? It's the classic um, happening in the psychological cycle, but the psychological cycle has been tremendously supported by money printing and money injection by the central banks. That has been much, much, much bigger than any time before in history. That gives you all these new specs, vehicles, and things like that, where people buy into something they do not know what it is. They know the price, but they do not know the valuation because they do not know what is in it. Uh, and and this is a uh, an exaggeration and an excess that you always see in the later stages of a long bull market. Well, let me let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about gold, because this is something you and I have spoken a lot about in the past, and it's something that I know you've been a fan of over the years, but it, but it feels to me as though given what gold has, or rather more accurately hasn't done, with ne uh, real interest rates being where they are, so deeply negative, it feels like we almost need to revisit how we think about gold to try and understand why it has or hasn't done what it was supposed to do in this environment. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know, I know you've spent some time thinking about that. Well, 
everything that would have pushed up the price of gold has happened. Uh, the central yeah. banks going wild, uh, the real interest rates uh, going deep down into negative uh, territory, the uh, geopolitical world um, being less stable and, and very unstable, getting more unstable by the day. Everything that should have made the gold price uh, go up uh, has been arriving, uh, but the gold price didn't respond. And uh, I think gold is uh, sort of something, an asset class that is outside of our economic and credit system and banking system. And I call it the anti-fiat uh, uh, currency, uh, fiat assets. And a new asset class has come into favor, which is the cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. And I think the millennials, uh, the younger people, the younger generation, instead of gold, they are buying cryptos. And the crypto market uh, has grown very big. Uh, today, the uh, gold market uh, asset class is uh, 9.5 trillion. Uh, the crypto market is 2.5 trillion and wasn't around 10 years ago or virtually not around 10 years ago. So I think uh, the crypto market has uh, uh, eaten gold's lunch uh, to some degree. And I think that will continue into 24. And then we will see what happens. You know, the roadway, uh, the crossway, whether central banks tighten as they should, or whether they don't tighten and try to depress bond yields. And depending on that, we will see what happens. If they do tighten, I think the cryptos will have a tough time. If they do not tighten and intervene in the bond market, I think cryptos will fly. And so uh, the gold market will eventually uh, go higher. Gold price will go higher. I had a sell signal for gold in August of 2020. Um, in the first quarter of next year, I'm expecting a buy signal. So the, the buy signal that relates to that sell signal. Uh, so I think from 22 on first quarter, uh, gold has a chance to move up again. The real excitement in gold, the eight-year cycle uh, is from 24 to 28. And that fits in very well with the timing of uh, stock market and real estate, et cetera, when things go crazy in the wrong direction and gold could then really fly in, in a big way. And what cryptos do at that time, we do not know yet. Uh, and I, I want to leave that open because I do not consider myself uh, an expert on cryptos. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> which again is very wise. So many people are feel compelled to offer an opinion on it. When I, like you, I don't, I don't know enough about it to, to make that decision. And we don't have enough, I guess, uh, track record to really make a call on that. Um, but listen, just just to finish off, you've you've spoken about this rising wedge, and you've laid out a very compelling case for a kind of weak first half of 2022, followed by a bounce into a 24 top, and and you've referred to that as a historical top. I think. So, what does that historical top? potentially look like in 24? Well, I, I think you will see crazy things that the, the leadership stocks uh, in the last six months uh, of a big bull market usually double in price. Uh, so consider that we are much higher in 23 and then go and double again. So the NASDAQ uh, that could decline first to 10,000 could easily go to 30,000. The NASDAQ 100. I'm speaking. So we will see all sorts of crazy things that you usually see at uh, at uh, a big top. 
Uh, you can reread books of 1929, and I think this top will be much bigger than the 20, 1929 top, because in 1929, it was only a small part of the population that was active in equities. Right. Uh, whereas uh, in, in 24, you will have uh, a big part of the population being active in equities. And therefore, uh, from a mass crowd uh, point of view, there will be much more people involved. And therefore, you have much more power to go to much more excesses. And uh, this is the upside. And, and what follows then is the downside. Fantastic. Felix, it's um, it's always so much fun and, and so educational getting a chance to talk to you. So I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking another hour out of your day to, to sit and talk about this stuff with me. Um, it, it really has been so thought-provoking. And uh, as I say, your your ability to to see markets in in a bi-directional way is uh, is just something to cherish right now because I, I think so many people are convinced we're either in a bull market or in a bear market and you can extrapolate that out as long as you want. So so thanks for sharing all those thoughts with, with everybody listening today. I know they'll find them incredibly valuable. You're most welcome. It's always a pleasure to be your guest and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Grant. Thanks, Felix. Take care of yourself and, and hopefully we'll be, able to, we'll be able to see each other in person soon. I hope so too. Okay. And healthy and being healthy. Stay yes. Healthy. Amen to okay. that. Well, all the best for, for Christmas and the new year. Take care. Same to you. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, as I explained at the top of the show, Felix's ability to see markets in 3D is truly an extraordinary gift. And it's one I'm hugely grateful to him for sharing with us. The roadmap he lays out of an upcoming bust followed by one more boom and then a final historic collapse fits so many market narratives right now and it makes so much sense that it's impossible to ignore. Again, please visit Felix's website to find out more about his work. You'll be glad you did, I promise you. Or better still, email Jen Mendel at jennifer at bluefoxadvisors.com. My sincere thanks once again to Felix for joining me today and of course to you for listening. I'll see you again next time. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.